there's a social angle that is really important to understand is that men fear being seen as uncommitted. They understand about the motherhood penalty. They see their they see their female friends, they see their female peer group being potentially sidelined because historically, and I'm, I'm hopeful that coming out of COVID it will be different, but historically flexible and remote working has been associated with mums stepping back from full-time work and men see the damage that, that can have to careers and they want to be seen as successful. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. This podcast and our award-winning fellowship is for parents who want to progress ambitious careers they love whilst being present with children they love. I believe absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children if that's what they want to do. But I do think there are just too many amazing people who get stuck on the career ladder because they want to be with their kids as well as doing really brilliant things at work. And I think we need to change this because it leads to gender inequality at the top. I'm sure we all have seen on social media these pictures of big boardrooms that are essentially full of people who look completely the same. And with this podcast, I want to give you inspiration, fresh ideas, practical support. I ask senior leaders and thought leaders what they've learned about combining ambitious careers and young children. And you can use this to progress your leadership career in a way that works for you whilst enjoying your young children. Beyond the podcast, if you want support in real life or online from brilliant like-minded peers, and if you want to get access to a world-class career development program for parents in senior leader mentoring and so on, then head over to our website on leadersplus.org.uk. If you go leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter, you get access to our newsletter. Every month we send out new ideas to try and new things to think about. You get access to our free events and also information about all the things that we do. And we get the feedback that it's really thought-provoking and helpful, which is what we aim to do. Today's podcast guest is Ian Dinvidi. I think he is the definition of brave. He's not going to listen to this intro, I think, before I release it. So I hope he doesn't disagree. But I think to me, he is definitely the definition of brave. He is the founder of Inspiring Dads, who supports organizations to help new fathers and, well, older fathers as well. And he's interesting because he's worked both as a dad in quite high-powered city-type consultancy roles, very fast-paced, demanding environments. And he's also looked after his children full-time, which nowadays even is still a usually brave thing to do, which often attracts plenty of judgment. We talk about gender equality at home and at work, and why actually gender equality at home is essential to gender equality at work, and what organizations can do to support this. We talk about that being brave to go beyond social expectations, and what to do to deal with the inevitable judgment, both judgment you might have of yourself but also judgment of your peers and maybe in judgment for the mom in hetero relationships you know that's that type of you know why are you not doing this school run and interestingly he also shares what men talk about in closed spaces when they talk about being dads and what worries he comes across when he runs those workshops discussing fatherhoods with other dads And we cover the huge pressure on workloads that many dads have because they're both faced with that breadwinner expectation and at the same time they don't want to be the same dads that their grandfathers were. 
So I really hope you're getting as much out of the conversation as I enjoy today's conversation. A very warm welcome, Ian, to the podcast. I am delighted to have you on. Why don't we start with you telling me who you are, what you do for work and who is in your family? Hi, thank you for inviting me. Um, so my name's Ian Dinwiddie. I've got two children. I've got a 12-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son. And I've also got a wife called Lisa who works as a lawyer, which is actually quite an important part of my story about how we've sort of designed it, sort of intentionally designed our, our lifestyle and our working patterns to sort of reflect what would be considered to be a non-traditional way of working and how that's worked for us. And so I'm founder of a business called Inspiring Dads. And I help dads to balance the complexity of modern life, especially focusing on the parental transition and talking often with dads about how to be a great dad without sacrificing a great career. Mm. And tell me a bit more about, you said it's a non-traditional setup. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Yeah, so when Lisa and I first met, she was working as a lawyer and she still does work as a lawyer and I was working as a management consultant. And what we realised as we were, I guess, about Mary, I think we were thinking quite a long way ahead. We were thinking about what happens if we have children, if we're lucky enough to have children, how will that work for us as a family? And what we realised and what we kind of had to factor in quite early on was that actually, you know, her parents uh, live in the Channel Islands. My mum died shortly before our, our oldest was born and they were living in Somerset. My dad not particularly close and not particularly sort of mobile and able to look after young children we'd have to consider how we were going to sort of organize childcare. and the choice that we sort of made was that the nature of my consultancy work was that i could be a freelancer i could come back to it i could dip in and out whereas lisa with a much more structured career and, and a much more structured working pattern and also pragmatically around financial implications was that she was earning more than i was and she was, you know, likely to earn more. I guess the ceiling on earning is slightly different. And so we kind of made this decision over, over a period of months, I guess, of discussing that actually when we were to become parents, then Lisa took her six months of fully paid maternity leave. I took my two weeks of statutory, sorry, maternity leave, and I took my two weeks of statutory paternity leave. And then I went to four days a week, and then ultimately I stopped work altogether. So when Freya was about six months old, I became a full-time stay-at-home dad. I had full responsibility for Freya from about any sort of nursery support for about nine months, from six months to about 16 months. And then she was in nursery two days a week. I did some freelancing. That's very much the pattern that we, we did with our youngest, with Struan, when he was born, the three years apart. And I very much took the lead outside of uh, parental leave. Then I very much took the lead in terms of keeping them alive, ultimately, feeding them, looking after them, and generally taking them to the activities that we felt would be good to do. And so nowadays, I would describe myself as a school run dad. I do the drop-offs this morning, I'll do the pickups. When the time of recording, in about 50 minutes to an hour's time, then I'll do all the pickups. I'll pick up, pick up my son, then pick up my daughter, and Lisa will be in London. She's back in the office a couple of days a week, and that's how we've arranged it. So pragmatic decisions, which I think a lot of families make, but also something that's slightly different from the norm, I think becoming more and more common that men not necessarily being seen as the primary breadwinners, much more nuanced in terms of caring responsibility and breadwinning responsibility. So that's how that's how we're set up. Mm. And did you always know that that was an option for you? Or was there a moment when you first realised, well, actually, yeah, I could take on a different role from the majority of dads? 
I think it became obvious to us that it was the most sensible decision. And Lisa and I kind of share kind of similar values in terms of being quite sort of pragmatic about what might work. I think I had the, in some ways, looking back, I had the the sort of benefit of growing up in a family where we didn't re- rely on mum. That wasn't our sort of role model in terms of gender diversity was, I guess, quite a strong thing in our family because our mum had multiple sclerosis and she uh, developed it. I guess she, she was in a wheelchair from, I guess, when I was about 11 years old, 11, 12 years old, that kind of age. And so my brother and I were very much as much as we were you know, looking up, we, we weren't so much being looked after as we were sharing the care, we were sharing the domestic load. And so and we my dad as well. So I think in hindsight, always knew that it was entirely possible. And like, if that's what worked, you know, in terms of men taking more of an active role, then that's what needed to happen in many ways. And I think that was quite an important aspect. But I think understanding, for me personally, understanding that I could work and that it was and that the options for working as a management consultant would be there to go back into. That was quite an important element of it, but also a sense of identity. And in many ways, when you sort of remove yourself from sort of, uh, I guess, formal working patterns, certainly in my experience was I needed something that would replace that kind of status, something I could work towards. So part of that later became working towards my coaching qualification, but also I do a lot of hockey umpiring and, at the time, I was progressing quite well through the kind of levels that you kind of go through and experience and you get more and more better, better and better games and you get coached and, you know, you, you progress that way. And so quite important for me, I almost traded a sort of sense of identity around my work, uh, work sort of identity, you know, consultancy. It's quite a well, I guess it's quite in some ways, quite a well-regarded you know, career path, a certain amount of status to that. And that was, that was something that I put to one side but also I had something to fall back on. I had this sense of working towards a kind of expert status and that hockey umpiring was something I would do. But it was tricky. You know, it won't sort of beat around the bush on it too much because actually I remember very clearly people asking me, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a management consultant, but I'm just not doing it at the moment. But that, in many ways, that wasn't really the case. I was very much looking after my daughter and consultancy was something that was part of my life, but it wasn't something I was doing actively. And for me personally, having something that I could tap into that allowed me to work towards that was independent of looking after Freya was really, really important, I think, for my mental health. I think. Mm. And it's really refreshing to hear you talk so openly about the status because it is probably something innately human that we all do need a status and we need to be rejected. And obviously having that status from doing the hockey umpiring, that was a really practical thing. And I think... Many people I speak to who go on maternity leave or share parental leave, they miss that status. Um, not to say that you can't have a status as a stay-at-home mom or, or stay-at-home dad, but it is it is different. And sadly, it's viewed as differently in the, your society. So actually, yeah, I can really see also with the mental health. Um, I do quote my mom quite a bit on this podcast, but she she's a GP and she's explained to me that apparently it's really important for people to feel valued if you, you know, for their mental health generally. And I can see how, how that's there. And but tell me, do you remember still when you told your your mates at work that you would go and become a stay-at-home dad for a while? How did you feel about that conversation? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think, first and foremost, the business I was working with at the time called Change Management Group were brilliant. And everyone I worked with was brilliant because we actually, Lisa and I planned it a long way in advance. I think I effectively handed in my notice somewhere around about nine, 10 months before I actually finished in, uh, I guess I finished in June 2010. So we already had this transition plan of what I was, where I was going to work, what I was going to do. And I think for for many men and many of my contemporaries, the sort of first and foremost was good for you, but also this sort of sense, well, I couldn't possibly do that. And you have these kind of these two competing angles, which is quite interesting. And you know, the men I work with now very much kind of see that as well. It's like men are like, well, that sounds amazing, but I'm not sure it would work for us or I'm not sure it would work for me. Or I don't think I could do that. And so it takes a particular, almost a sort of degree of kind of bravery, because I, I met a lot of dads, certainly first time around with Freya. I, I used to go kind of across South London about half hour, 45 minutes or so. I used to catch up with a friend of mine who was a police officer, and he, he was on shift patterns. And so we would catch up together, spend some time with our daughters of some very similar age, babies, babies at the time, then 11, yeah, 12, they're both 12, I think now. And certainly his is as well. And I used to go to a dad's group as well in Wimbledon in southwest London. And in that group, you had a lot of men. I met a lot of men for whom that dad's group, you know, I think it ran twice a week. But on the day I was there, this was their highlight of their week. They weren't necessarily going out and interacting with mother and toddler groups because they were seen as mother and toddler groups in a way that I was actually quite comfortable with that. But I realized that lots of men weren't. And they were feeling quite uncomfortable about feeling you know, a fish out of water in an environment they weren't necessarily, didn't necessarily have the skills to be in. They worried about how they were being perceived. That's something that quite surprises me. You know, sometimes men are concerned about their, you know, their role within a parenting group that I didn't feel, but I, you know, I do work with men who have expressed a kind of concern about how that's perceived. And then in ultimately what appears to be a women's space on the outside of things. Yeah, it was difficult. And it, one of the things that really sort of motivated me was to help men to navigate these different elements and, and to make men more men feel comfortable about taking leave, which is increasingly a choice that couples can make as more and more businesses ex, you know, extend their parental leave and start to equalise parental leave. You're seeing more and more men have the opportunity. So what are the barriers? I think it's really important to understand what are the barriers for men taking up what can be really, really good policies? What is it about the experience of being a stay-at-home dad or looking solo parenting a young child that can put men off and actually say, actually, I want to be more connected with my kids, but I'm not sure it's necessarily right for me. And I think that's, that's a big part of my motivation. I think that's so interesting. And I hear quite often the other side of the story where women tell me they've had conversations with their partners and they've come to the conclusion independently from wider society that for them, the best thing is for the woman to take a long return to leave, which may well be the case for that particular couple. But I think it is interesting that share parental leave is an offer, but that doesn't seem to be the men are not always supported to take it up, both by their employer and by wider society. What do you think we can all do practically to support men to use that and to feel good and okay about doing share parental leave without it being a damage to their career? Yeah, I mean, on a practical angle, shared parental leave is a little matic, and anyone who's tried to navigate through it will understand that. So it takes a certain degree of determination. But one of the things that's really, really important is that actually 
there's an assumption that other men aren't supportive of parental leave. Now, in my experience, anecdotally, then that wasn't the case. The men were really like, oh, wow, that's like an amazing opportunity. But also there's some brilliant research from, I think it was last year it came out, from the Government Behavioural Insights team. They did some work with Zurich and with Santander. What they did was they surveyed men and they surveyed them to understand what was their intention of taking parental leave or working flexibly or remotely, I think they were looking at. And then they looked at their intention. They also asked them, how much do you think your peer group are going to be supportive of you taking parental leave? And they found this really big gap, a really interesting gap, is that men were much more likely to be supportive of each other, taking leave, working flexibly, working remotely, whatever that might look like than they perceive their peers to be. And by and they describe it as something, a concept which I hadn't heard of before, it's called pluralistic ignorance. So by talking to the men within this business, within Santander, they were able to then change the attitude towards taking leave by saying, actually, your cohort, your peers, your competitors, which is how we kind of need to look at men in, in the workplace in many ways, they support you taking leave. And they all want, and you all want to take leave. And actually by shining a light on that, and by, you know, by getting deep into what men actually wanted, what that perspective dads actually wanted, it changed the attitudes of other men. So you start to create this culture where hopefully not only is it, you know, not only do the policies support men taking leave, but also ultimately we want it to be culturally, not, not only culturally acceptable, but culturally expected, I think. Because I think in, in many cases, sometimes there's a disjoint between policy, great policy, but if the attitudes and behaviours aren't there, I guess that's the first main thing is talking to men and understanding actually and sharing the story that actually men support other men taking leave. But also to look at senior male role models. You know, men often get their clues within businesses from the men who are more senior to them, the positions they ultimately want to potentially hold within a business. And when those men start to model active involved fatherhood and saying and being open and leaving loudly, then that can make a real cultural change about how what success looks like within that business mm, those are excellent points and I've seen some research by time wise that men are asking to work flexibly as women but just don't dare yeah yeah there's a social angle that is really important to understand is that men fear being seen as uncommitted they understand about the motherhood penalty they see their they see their female friends they see their female peer group being potentially sidelined because historically and I'm hopeful that coming out of COVID it will be different but historically flexible and remote working has been associated with mums stepping back from full-time work and men see the damage that that can have to careers and they want to be seen as successful because in a lot of heterosexual relationships men you know men are often earning more in the first place and when we when we factor in maternity leave and extended maternity leave that gap gets bigger men are afraid of if they're not seen as committed, they're afraid of letting their families down. They're afraid of not getting the promotion and that they're afraid of the decisions they make, you know, sort of undermine that really important, both from a practical and from that emotional and that identity piece around being the breadwinner. And so removing some of those barriers and fears is really important as well. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And if someone is listening to this and is line managing someone who's about to become a a dad for the first time a man who's about to become a dad what advice do you have for this line manager for the line manager i think it's really important to have really sort of open conversations and push and really look to get 
underneath, really understand where the pressure points are for that individual, for that individual man, because we won't necessarily, as men, we won't necessarily share it. But anything you can do to maybe connect with other dads and say, actually, we've got someone in the team who took, who became a dad recently, or in this this other team that we've got, you know, maybe you can talk to each other, connect men together. That's really, really powerful, so they can share stories. Because actually, when you get men together to talk about fatherhood and parenting in a group set up for that purpose, then that can be really powerful. Ask great questions. Ask what support they need. Don't just stop at, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. What are the sleepless nights? It's like, well, what's it really like? Where are the pressure points? What are you worried about at the moment? Get really deep into it because it's only when you keep asking those questions and dig a little bit deeper, you'll get a more honest answer and perhaps you start to look at what kind of support that individual needs because for some you know for some dads then it'll be really straightforward and it will depend on you know might depend on what kind of family support they have you know might depend on how well their partner's coping but unless we ask really good questions we're not likely to to know what that bit that is you know what will actually be going on for that individual dad Mm, that's so true um, so as part of our fellowship we have probably about 10% of the fellows are dads which I'm really happy that we do have dads we'd love to have more but I guess that's just the society at the moment and we do bring the dads together and I think that is such an important thing because there are issues that are unique to dads when they are brave enough to try to challenge the existing status status quo and I know you do that as well with your organization and um, I was going to ask you about your thinking about conversations across a couple mm. and it's very much at the forefront of my mind because this evening I'm leading a session for our fellows to basically where they are sharing their vision for their career and family life as a couple for those of them who are in a couple relationship and obviously we do that in a structured way through through the fellowship which is nice for those who are part of it but I think what's unique about your story is that you had those conversations with your wife very early on and not many people do that and let's face it none of us have time to have a proper conversation with their partner I guess it's not so much a question but just any reflections about how to make sure that you do have those big and important discussions with your partner what did you do first and foremost it predates any kind of coaching work I did I wasn't wasn't working as a coach at the time I guess we sort of it requires a certain degree of vulnerability and a certain degree of actually we're, we're thinking ahead and what am I worried about? What, you know, what does it look like? What does the future look like in some ways? You know, when I work with with dads in a sort of, whether it's group or one-to-one, I like them to think about their be, do, have. You know, what who do they want to be? What do they want to do? And what do they want to have? And be really honest about that with themselves. And so until, until and I think it goes for any individual, until you have a really good conversation with yourself and recognise what's important to you and not worry about actually, is it socially okay if I want a car every three years? If that's on your be, do, have, then recognise it and, and own that. And then to use that as a framework to have good conversation with your partner. Because I think that's where, you know, talking about, you know, creating shared direction. And it doesn't have to be, you know, we've, we've got a couple at the moment which are important to us. And it's more like a little bit like a beacon, I guess. It's like, a, you know, you light a beacon in the future. And so this is dr- roughly speaking, this is where I want to go. I used to use the analogy of a lighthouse. It doesn't really work because you're not trying to hit the lighthouse. You're trying to avoid the lighthouse. But in that, imagine you light something and say, okay. And then once you've got this kind of overall vision of roughly which direction you want to be in. And for us, for Lisa and I, and then we kind of had this, one of us will always be there for the kids. That was our kind of mantra. And actually, that's what was important. 
And it happened to be that for a lot of the time, it's me. But during the weekend, it's not so much because I do a little bit more sport with the kids. I, I happen to help out with the hockey and I help out with my son's football as well. But we had to kind of have that as a guiding principle. So if you can kind of almost distill it down to a almost like a mission statement, it's almost like a couple's mission statement brought into us. Is it for, for some people, it'll be what's important is that we have amazing experiences, amazing holidays. You know, for other people, it will be, well, well, you know, it'll be teaching children about religion. It'll be spiritual. It'll be something different. But understanding what that guiding light almost is, I think, is is really, really key. Um, but you do have to be a bit vulnerable. You do have to, there'll be things that maybe that are important to you that you maybe haven't shared with with your partner. And maybe you are uncomfortable sharing it. But I think that's the that's the route to success in some ways is getting it all out there and going, well, how do we make this work? How do we mm. keep everyone happy? That is exactly what we're doing this evening. We should probably call it a joint mission statement. I do like the analogy of a lighthouse because it is about the direction. I also, tangentially, I came across Gottman, which I only came across him after we designed the workshop for couples. But there is actually research that shows that if couples have those long-term conversations, they're more likely to be happy, etc. So... I think your advice is spot on and is supported by research, actually. There's a lot to be said for equality in the home being a route to gender equality and um, more generally in happiness and the, the sense of fairness of how you divide things up at home, whether that's sort of physical labour or more sort of emotional, mental load. It's getting it that right. And I think what I find really interesting about working with new dads at the parental transition is actually that's the moment when everything's up in the air. Certainly first time dads, when you're pulled in different directions, you want to be a great great partner you want to be a great dad you know brilliant at work time for yourself and all these different elements they come together and actually you know there's evidence from the nct that shows that men you know new dads suffer you know are much more likely to suffer from mental health issues when they first become a new dad but at the same time actually the more leave you know there are better perinatal outcomes for for female partners where their male partners take parental leave and are involved in a physically there rather than necessarily perhaps you know having to go back to work now not everyone's got that choice but it is important to kind of recognize that how these things interact mm, but i think we also should probably name one of the elephants in the room which is finance and that at the moment it's legal in the uk and a lot of our lessons are from the uk it's legal for an organization to pay enhanced maternity leave pay but not shared parental leave enhanced pay so if you have two people working for the same organization and they pay excellent maternity pay but not excellent share parental leave pay then obviously that is a problem so I think yeah there is this, this bigger issue in yeah really fascinating to talk to you there's so many things to explore further one thing I've been thinking about a fair bit recently is this idea of creating a community for change and I think that's a bit harder for dads because you know, there's a lot of stigma for a dad who wants to take share parental leave or wants to work flexibly. What is your advice to a dad who's listening to this and who wants to do things differently? And obviously, we've got a fellowship program where dads have specific groups. You've got your program. But is there anywhere else where people can find like-minded dads from what you know? Yeah, I think they're, they're often closer than men expect. I think this is the thing is that just having a conversation with dads, you know, you won't be there. Not every man will feel the same way. Many, you know, there are many relationships that are very effective and very happy on traditional, traditional grounds. But talking to as many men and just opening the conversation up about 
fatherhood or about the leave and saying, well, what, what leave are you going to take? Or what leave can you take at your workplace if you're a pers- prospective dad? Because the shared parental leave is, is tricky because it's, in many ways it's optional. It's not ring fences. It's transferable leave, as we, as we know, it tends not to be enhanced. And um, there are, you know, there are significant, a growing and significant number of large businesses who have equalised their parental leave, sort of 26 weeks is kind of the, the kind of classic number. So six months of fully paid parental leave, regardless of how you become a parent. I think it goes back to this idea of actually, your may, as a dad, your dad allies, your other dads who feel the same way are probably closer than you expect. It's just that I've had this conversation a few times with me. We often we talk about these kind of silos. And actually, when you start to take a step back, you realize you have different sets of friends you talk about different things with. So you'll have perhaps your, your mates who you used to play football with, and you'll talk about football when you meet them. You'll have your I've got friends from, from Somerset who I don't see so often, but we talk about kind of school days and that sort of thing and shared experience. And work may be work, but actually being kind of just opening the conversation up and sort of saying, oh, you know, I find it so hard when they don't sleep or we'll talk about this kind of thing and just start to have those conversations because my experience of doing the new dad's accelerator with, with groups of men is that when you get them together and you signpost it as, we, you know, we're going to talk about the pressures of fatherhood, what's been really great for you this week, what are you worried about? The men will start to have those conversations. But I think on an individual basis, for individual dads listening, you kind of have to be a little bit, you do actually have to be a little bit brave and just kind of seek out like-minded men or, or open the conversation up and, and talk about it and just get the conversation flowing a little bit. Men will be, will be quite cautious. We'll all be quite cautious. Why are you asking me that question? We don't talk about this usually. But I think that's the first and foremost step is to is to put it out there and go for it because there are so many men who who probably want to have that conversation are ready to have that conversation certainly a generational shift that i see mm-hmm. that's very true it almost feels like outing you know the way that you describe it actually saying yes i do not want to be the same type of that that my grandfather was not not saying maybe that grandfather was an amazing that but you might not just not want to have the same work pattern you might not want to have the same long hours how do you deal with those expectations that people place on you i think that's very powerful men do talk about it. they talk about the dad they don't remember growing up that's the kind of theme it's not that they see that in a you know they weren't bad dads it's just the expectations and actually to be honest the expectations on fatherhood even now is re- the bar is set relatively low and i think that's some of the challenges is that men who do look after children on a, on a you know full-time on a solo basis and build those skills the kind of level of social judgment is very different and actually you know banishing some of those stereotypes about dads being incompetent or being lazy are really really important to change the narrative so we don't see you know we don't see mums necessarily being the best carers it's a lot of the skills are learnt skills you know dad you know and, and we can if we can break up some of those assumptions about what men and women can do in a caring responsibility we can also do a lot to improve gender equality in the workplace because we no longer assume that mums will always want to be working flexibly they might not they might that might not work for that that setup that family setup Mm, exactly I hear so many even this morning I was running a session with our new group of fellows and there was someone saying I went on maternity leave and everyone asked me when I was going to go part-time and whether my career was going to take a back step and their male partner didn't get any of those comments which and everyone in the room was nodding. And that's exactly it, isn't it? It's, it? It is that social expectation. So you, I would call you a dad expert or a dad at work expert. 
Dadvocate. Sometimes it's Dadvocate. Yeah, there's lots of good, there's lots of quite like cheesy names. Dadvocate. <laughs> that is very fun. So, as a Dadvocate or a Dad expert, I'm just interested. Did you learn anything new from your last group of dads that you supported? Uh, anything that you didn't know before? Uh, did you have any aha moments recently about supporting dads? Yeah, there's always something. I think. The thing that I usually learn, and I kind of learn it each time in some way, so maybe I don't, don't learn fast enough, obviously, is that whereas Lisa and I have always talked about these kind of challenges, and Lisa sort of, you know, Lisa will sometimes say, "You're, I think you're different to a lot of men because you're a lot more emotional. You're a lot more prepared to talk about things that make you feel emotional." So I, you know, I, I'm a crier, quite frankly. You know, I will cry at a film. You know, I what did I see? I think it's a Disney film where the the dad dies and they try and bring him back, and they really got a certain amount of time. The cartoon, it's not was it Inside Out? I can't remember. Anyway, anyway, that one that that set me off. You know, you're different than perhaps a lot of men, and I think it's easy to assume that dads don't kind of care, and that's what I got reminded all the time, is that dads absolutely do care about being involved and being connected and having great relationships but sometimes they kind of worry about stepping outside of what the norms look like and that they and they hold a lot in and they hold a lot in in relationships as well as holding a lot in in terms of their kind of I guess their public perception the projection they have about what type of dad they are but underneath that surface is often a man who's like I really just really need to talk about this and get it off my chest but not feeling confident because you know, we have values, you know, society holds values about what a great dad or what a strong masculine man looks like. And I think, you know, every time I do group coaching and, and individual coaching as well, is that there are plenty of men for whom they haven't quite worked out the language or the way to talk about it. But the desire is absolutely there. Mm, interesting. That's very powerful. So if a dad is listening to this and they might be stuck in a job, very long hours, very traditional setup, and they want to change something. What is one or two, three small practical thing they could do to move closer to the type of setup that would be right for them? I think first and foremost is to recognise if it is a problem, to recognise it as a problem and to start to talk to, you know, if you're in a relationship, it's your partner, I guess, first and foremost. What I do find from working with dads and we do the kind of be, do, have exercise is that the core things that men that I work with want often don't come with much a financial cost. So a lot of it will be about the type of person they want to be and the type of legacy they want to leave. It's not about material aspects. And I think often dads can feel trapped in a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy whereby the work that we do, you know, maybe isn't necessarily satisfying anymore or how we're doing it isn't satisfying anymore, but tied into a sense of actually providing and, and couldn't possibly unless because everything's tied in with that. I think a friend of mine who I spoke to when I first started doing this work, he talked about going to rock bottom with his work-life balance. And his name's Will, and he, he told his story, and I've I published his story before. And we've talked about his story. And he was an alcoholic. And he recognized what rock bottom looked like because he'd gone to rock bottom as an alcoholic. And he realized that his work-life balance wasn't working for him. He was going to work. It was dark. He was coming home. It was dark. He didn't see his children. And he realized that there was an issue. So I think first and foremost is, is recognizing there was an issue and then starting to talk about it. And actually, 
once you've started recognizing issues, actually, what are the fundamentals? What is our what's our beacon? Where are we going? How much, you know, how much money do we need for the life that we want to live? And hopefully, with any luck, as a couple, we'll be aligned. But also, we know, you know, there's lots of research that said that men men really feel the stress of being a solo breadwinner and when it's all down to them. So looking to kind of have an open and honest conversation, I think, about, you know, how do we achieve our, what are our objectives? Financially, what do our objectives cost? You know, are we tied into a particular lifestyle? Is, you know, can I not take a step away from this role or do something slightly different because we're tied into a financial come now some things will be harder to you know harder to change than others but there was a a man called Matt Rudd he in the times he did an article as a pre-pandemic it was called why aren't more middle-aged men happy and he interviewed men who in their kind of I guess late 40s early 50s that kind of age range who were commuting out of London Victoria station and what he found was there was a pattern of men feeling like they were trapped within a financial setup that they couldn't then get out of I think the earlier you can recognise that, the better, because there mm. were a lot of costs associated with that. You didn't feel like you step back, partly because of that sense of breadwinning. Mm. Yeah, and that really corresponds with Christine Armstrong, one of our mentors and just general thought leader and so on. She once said to me, the most important thing is, is that you don't increase your spending in line with your earnings because then you can never go back and you are trapped so I thought that was really I keep repeating that piece of advice I think it is really really helpful Christine's great I follow her and watch her videos weekly she's brilliant Mm, she's got a great newsletter (laughs) as do you so we're coming to the end of a podcast but I'm sure lots of people want to find out about you and connect with you where should they hit so there's two places to go so I spend a lot of my time on LinkedIn so Ian Dinwiddie on LinkedIn there are two Ian Dinwiddies but one of them is inspiring dads, and the other one, I think, is an engineer from Shropshire. So hopefully not too many people are connecting with him. I should probably reach out and say hi at some stage. So Ian Dinwiddie on LinkedIn and inspiringdads.co.uk is the website where you can get hold of resources and thought leadership. And there's an old podcast there as well as a number of things. And a webinar, doing webinars once a month, talking about why supporting new dads at work is the route to gender equality. Fantastic. Wonderful. It was really lovely to have you on, Ian. And thank you so much for spending the time with me today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation about that, you might also like episode 32, where we talked to Dominic Holmes, who is a partner in a law firm, working part-time. He shares why he is one of the first dads in the legal sector at partner level to go part time and how he manages the needs of his clients on his day off. If this has been helpful to you and you want to get more involved, the best place to start is to go to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. We are looking for individuals to get more involved in our movement and we're looking for people who are really happy to support others or believe we need to have more parents who continue to progress on the leadership career trajectory but also people who don't want to just progress their own careers, but also help others, be the change for others. And on our website, leadersplus.org.uk, you can see an overview of upcoming events. If you're very senior, you can also apply to become a senior leader mentor. And if you are a parent with kids between age zero and 11, you can, or pregnant for that matter, or expecting, should you adopt, you can apply to join our fellowship it's a award-winning development program for parents. Um, it's all about career development. 
you'll get access to some really inspirational role models who are really keen to share their experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers. Um, you get some support with practical challenges, for example, managing workload or saying no. You get really important thinking time to develop your vision, what's important to you, what do you want to achieve in your career and your family life, and, and create a plan to get every peers to really get there. And also, we look at research and causes career progression and how you can use this because usually it's, it's not just hard work that makes careers progress, but sometimes you might be able to manage other things like workplace politics and we discuss how to use this in order to progress your career whilst still living your own values and whilst still heading out on time. And then there are sessions with your partner and your line manager if you happen to have one because we really believe it's the system and the environment that crucial here, not necessarily fixing just the parents, actually not, no fixing of the parents whatsoever. There are also for the fellowship, for example, there are hardship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances and we always have plenty of those available, so yeah, but you can see all that on the website. Next week we will hear from Laurie Weingart and I think this is going to be a very popular episode. She's an academic who has written an extremely insightful book together with peers on the same note. See you next week.